right, we are live. Welcome to Carpets and Coffee, the close to the 2021 season. We have a special guest with us today, the Carpet Python guru man himself, the one and only Mr. Nick Mutton, uh, is going to be joining us uh, and chatting about all things Carpet Pythons, right? <laughs> I don't know. Nick, are you a fan of coffee? I, it's the only thing that makes my life worth living. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I don't think I ever drank a cup of coffee in my life till I had kids. And since I was the stay-at-home parent, changing diapers and waking up all night, it became the only thing that kept me going. And now I can't live without it. Like, I'm I'm so addicted to coffee that I'll get a headache if I haven't had any coffee. Like, I have to drink caffeine. Yes. But I'm also I'm right old, there with so you. I can't have too much later in the day. So it's too late to have more coffee now because I've already exceeded uh, my coffee quota. <laughs> yeah that's the sucky thing right we can't we can't have too like, much or, yeah. i'll go through like two or three pots of coffee in the next 48 hours easy uh, my typical weekend i try to get writing done in the morning when everyone else in my house is asleep i'll get up before them and i'll just make a big ass pot of coffee sit here in my slippers and my bathrobe and write in the quiet house but i'm getting nice. a lot of coffee i can't do it without the coffee it's, a, it's an nice. integral part of the creative process i think I don't know about How you. Did, I get a headache if I don't drink enough, and then I also get a headache if I drink too much. Like it has to be right in the sweet spot. There well, is a Goldilocks coffee drinker, and the sweet <laughs> spot for me is not a whole pot of coffee, then pre-workout, then two energy drinks back to back. That is not the sweet spot. Good lord! Yeah, <laughs> Holy hell, hell man! To do that. Like it's uh, you end up with that. I wonder like, you're in beast mode. <laughs> you, know, you end up like you feel like you're gonna puke and stuff, and you're jittery, and you feel like you're gonna throw up, and you're it's just like you're like this is awesome, <laughs> crawling all over your skin. It's like not pleasurable. Like it's like oh it. man, I did yeah, get I want to coffee, just... one energy drink, and some pre workout. I'll just you know space out. Go to it. I did get this interesting coffee that I saw, and uh, it's called Cooper's Cast Coffee, and. Um, it's basically aged in whiskey barrels. Nice. I don't know what that's going to do to the taste, but we got malt whiskey barrel coffee, rye whiskey barrel coffee, yeah. and rum barrel Ooh. coffee. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, report back on those. I'm intrigued. They I just bet, came. I bet those will be very, uh, very Sweet. flavor forward and, and sweet on the back end. I had no idea you were yeah, so sophisticated, says, Eric. Oh yeah, I'm I'm high end when it comes to coffee. That's uptown. (laughs) Carpets and coffee, I'm high end. You know everything else, I'm just uh, you know, you know, boring. But uh, basically, I read this here. It's aged in whiskey barrels in small batches. These coffee beans are uh, from Indonesia. Uh, The style of bean has a specific taste and notes of woody earth and mild sweet tobacco with a ripe tropical fruit. When aged in whiskey brows, the flavor and aroma of the beans is enhanced with the sweetness of vanilla and caramel from the whiskey. Upon tasting, you get an enriched coffee experience with a very long whiskey finish. I bet you it's good with cigar. A very, yeah. very long finish. Very yeah. long. Speaking of cigars, <laughs> I was just over at Total Wine and More today looking in, in their cigar room. I picked out one for my dad for Christmas, but I had to call Justin. I was like, I don't know what, what the hell I'm doing. doing. And he was too busy. He didn't answer, but... Yes. I did draw on previous conversations I've overheard about him talking about cigars and pick something out that after he got back to me, he said it did good. So okay, you know, a nice you. fancy uh, Padron. Um, nice. Yeah, the the fucking thing was like twenty dollars. 
<laughs> Holy like, shit. All right, cool, man. Like, I, you know, kudos. Here you go. If I smoke that, I'll keel over and die. <laughs> yeah. cough, out, cough out a lung. Isn't that the this goal? Is day, this is day two of feeling good. So uh, huh. I'm not Thank smoking you. anything. There you go. Uh, I, I, yeah, my lungs are up. working today. So nice. Glad to hear um, that. Yeah, finally, yeah. right? I guess the uh, the uh, what do you call it? Last night the uh, holiday show, uh, you know, and <laughs> three Eric hours Sloan long. Grew three sizes that night. <laughs> <laughs> I did give your closing finish though, uh, Lucas. Me? Yeah, I gave your closing. Oh finish yeah, night. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Yeah. Bye. 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 <laughs> for that i was i was uh i was bummed to miss it but it was a, it was a good time yeah it was a good time you had a lot of cool people in there mm-hmm. so nick talk to us about carpets come on you want to tell us about the book what, what do you got for us well, what do i got for him uh, when 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 are, when are we going to see this is it the more complete carpet? Is that what you I guys didn't want it, it to be, but I think it will be. I think there's kind of like a that precedent was established, and I don't think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna get outvoted on that one, so I'm prepared to accept that. <laughs> Good answer. So only been like, this is only the third book that's in that series that's will have a second edition, and the first two went with that, so I'm pretty sure they're gonna like we've already mocked up the cover with that on there. Like <laughs> I'm pretty sure gotcha. they're gonna want it to. I if I, it was up to me alone, I probably wouldn't put them more on there, but it's not up, always up to me. So, On a scale of 1 to 10, how painful has the process been to what you expected it to be when you went into it? Um, <laughs> it's substantially more painful. <laughs> well, you ever, I mean, there's a, there's a phenomenon in the military called mission creep where they, <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about? We got a bad case of mission creep with this one. It's like you start out to do, you have your objectives and what you want to produce and everything. And then you start going down various rabbit holes and just keeps expanding up, expanding. And then you start to uncover things that probably should be addressed, but no one's ever addressed them because it's really, really difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And so we ultimately, you know, we basically rewrote a lot of this book three times. Wow. Uh, and the last version of it is just finally like, screw it. We're just going to go all the way uh, and go down every rabbit hole and be as thorough as possible and make the changes that need to be made. And, you know, because initially it's like, we're not taxonomists. We don't want to get into that sort of, you know, uh, cesspool. But uh, right. it's just, a, which is taxonomy is just don't even get me started on that. It's just a, <laughs> I think the general sort of non-academic uh Herpers uh, had this idea that like taxonomy is some rigidly regimented science where there's like rules and it's like, and it's totally not, it's just completely made up and largely nonsense. Right. It is entirely left to the discretion of anyone writing the paper, what the standard for species, subspecies or whatever is genus. There are no rigid definitions and there are thus no universally accepted requirements at all. So you see, vastly different pythons that are classified as the same species. And then on the other side of it, you've got frogs that are classified as separate full species based entirely on the calls that they make. Right. Frog in this valley here makes a slightly different noise and the same frog in a different valley. There are different species. There are birds that are classified entirely on the color of certain patches of feathers or the songs that they sing. 
which is basically nothing. But the, also you find that for whatever species group you're looking into, there's usually like a small little group of academics that are the guys who write all the papers on that thing. And so their personal ideology, which has no basis in any sort of rules at all, right. carries the day. Right. And it just happens that in the Indo-Australian Python world, they're a bunch of extreme lumpers that think everything's the same. Right. Uh, they're not as bad as the monitor guys who write those papers that think literally everything is that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard, that all Varanids are somehow in Varanus. That's nuts. Right. That is nuts. It's like, you're telling me a little Brevacata is the same genus as a venomous Komodo dragon? Like, it's like literally 100 times the size <laughs> and literally venomous, same genus. It's insane. Right. Yeah. But they, that is, but that's the prerogative of the people writing the, those papers. Well, it's probably the, the wing of science that has the most There's no... You have two-thirds of these guys don't believe that subspecies should even exist. Uh, so that leads you down absurd, various absurdities as well. Uh, it's just a, it, it's almost a philosophical sort of thing and not as rigid as people think. Like I, I, I got tired of explaining to people when that uh, paper on Antaresia came out that said children's pythons and Simpsons pythons are the same species. It's nonsense. That paper is <laughs> right. so full of like, I don't buy it at all. I buy that the Cape York spotteds are a different subspecies than the spotteds to the south of the Black Mountain Corridor because that follows the same biogeographical pattern you see in literally everything, in carpets, in scrub python, in everything that shares distribution above and below that point. It's a natural breakpoint, and you see genetic distinction above and below. So that doesn't surprise me at all. The making the New Guinea carpet, New Guinea spotted python a separate full species is insane. That mm -hmm. follows, that is like, wholly without precedent in every single instance of every single thing that's ever been looked at. <laughs> if there's population below the Black Mountain Corridor, above on the Cape York Peninsula, and also in New Guinea that share all those three places, uh, the Cape York ones and the New Guinea ones are exactly the same. And below the Black Mountain Corridor is different. <laughs> Always. Doesn't matter what yeah. you're looking at. So the spotted pythons, I think that was like, it, gave, it was the opportunity to name a new python, but I don't think that's going to hold up at all. I think that right. it's the same as, and plus I've got pictures of Cape, of spotted pythons from the tip of the Cape York Peninsula and Lockerbie that are clearly identical to the ones in New Guinea. They're the same. The same <laughs> and the fact that. And they didn't even put the pygmy bandit in there, ago, right? Was, that was one population 7,000 years ago. That is not enough time for speciation. Right. At all. Uh, so, <clears throat> but they, they didn't even include the pygmy bandit bite. Uh, no. And you got a question in no, the paper right. that like, Revises the whole Antaresia complex, uh, but doesn't answer the biggest question in all of Antaresia land. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't even address that. Uh, what? Like, there's a lot of like, there's normal Stimson's pythons all the way up, way far up the Cape that aren't pygmy bandits and are not spotted pythons. Like, I've seen pictures of a few specimens from Iron Range. They not in the rainforest, but in the in the eucalypt savanna, the drier woodland that surrounds the rainforest in iron range right. like mm -hmm. right. pretty prototypical simpsons pythons of normal size and they're up there way that far up there so there's there's stuff that needs to be sorted out that's not uh not well understood yet but i don't i don't have a lot of faith in that paper for that reason and also yeah. there have been four papers previously that uh looked at the at a genomic level for antaresia never with big sampling or anything uh, usually it's as part of like they're looking at an overview of all pythons 
and they'll have Antaresia in there. And every single one of them shows children's pythons and Simpsons pythons as distinct species. Mm-hmm. They always show the same thing, that they're relatively recently derived and sister lineages. They're not that different, that they re- the split is recent, like mid-Pleistocene uh, divergence, which is relatively recent, but it all upholds that they're different things. Uh, and then now, oh, exactly the same thing, but these other things that clearly aren't a different thing are a different thing, and I just I don't... Uh, <laughs> There's some problems with the methodology in my estimation, and I'm fortunate in that I have a few friends that are geneticists, which is weird that for one person to have multiple friends who are geneticists, but <laughs> like three. It's um, good fortune. I got one of my True friends is a, he's actually American <laughs> doing postdoctoral stuff in Australia. I won't mention his name and drag him into me talking trash, but uh, he, uh, you know, he, he, he pointed out some flaws with the methodology of the samples and whatnot from that paper that kind of make me question my faith in it so and plus what's that paper say is it say they're the same species no it says in that guy's opinion they're the same species this idea that there is an official taxonomy is the problem and that the public look at how many australians just thought, well they're all children's pythons now as if there was some official decree that they're mm-hmm. all children's like no papers come out and anybody who reads that paper can choose to be persuaded and accept those findings or totally not Right. Uh, there is no such thing as an official taxonomy at all. There never has been and there never will be. Um, you do oftentimes eventually get to like a consensus opinion where people stop questioning things, but there's no official anything. Well, we lost Lucas. No, nah, he, he just turned into Owen. No, you did it. <laughs> we just gained an Owen squash. That's all. I'm so out of the loop. I'm like, what in the hell am I looking at right now? <laughs> That's pretty good, though. That's pretty, good. That's pretty good, right? Pretty good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very yeah, much. Oh, him, it it oh, stopped it Owen so dead mad. in his tracks yesterday, too. Yeah, it gets him. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to derail the show. Uh, silly me. I selected Avatar that was just my actual face. I didn't know we were going <laughs> uh, to pick something more comical. So there's no special oh, I got a taxonomy. I got, I, when the book comes out and the taxonomy is different, it is also not official. Uh, even my own is not. It is, you know, this is Justin and I's interpretation of all the available lines of evidence and data. And this is the conclusion we came to that makes the most sense. Uh, anybody reading that is free to disagree with it and come up with their own thing. And, you know, that's how it's always been. It's how it always will be. This, but people need to get out of their head that there's an official, uh, you know, uh, official taxonomy because uh, there is no such thing. Um, I believe some species exist. I think subspecies as a taxonomic designation are important because it's, you have like wide ranging species and there's population structuring within that. They're not all the same from place to place. They're not necessarily interbreeding anymore. So if you don't accept that subspecies exist, you end up with like crazy, you know, things you'd have to, you'd have to accept that a diamond python and a Papuan carpet python are the exact, are somehow indistinguishable. And that's just, patently absurd it's absurd so you but they're not so different as to genetically be a full species but you need to be able to it allows you to denote that you know population structure i do think you could make a coherent argument that spilota should not be that the rest of the carpets should be at full species status from spilota not in relation to each other but that you would have like a spilota as its own thing and then a variegata complex where all these subspecies would be subspecies of variegata, not a spilota. Uh, sp- diamond pythons are not, th- 
they're not as close to the other things as you've been led to believe. Um, they are pretty divergent. Um, the other, Which I guess, would make sense, right? Because they're so different than. If you take Spilota, Imbricata, and Bradley out of the mix, all the remaining carpet pythons are more closely related to each other than any of them are to those three. Gotcha. <laughs> so, okay. like a coastal is more, you know, a northern coastal is more closely. And I said northern, that's significant. Might be a come up later. I don't know. Uh, is more closely related to like a variegata than it is to a diamond python. Um, so. Uh, yeah. Chuck had a question. I don't know if you, uh, what, what do you, <laughs> what do you think about, uh, so they had a reptile fight club where, uh, Justin and, um, Scott Iper were talking about taxonomy of carpet pythons. And, um, one of the things that the Ipers believe is that they sort of refer to them as races, sort of what you're saying, the Varagata stuff sort of as races. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, my own personal thoughts is that I disagree with that. Uh, not like not strongly, but, uh, it's largely a semantic argument. Um, you could also use the term ecotype, which is another way. I, we don't want to use races in this book because it's largely for an American audience. And though there's perfect in a biological context, there's nothing wrong with that word. But as we all know, people will read things to take the complete wrong meaning, uh, there's, it's a perfectly good word and perfectly descriptive uh, in biological sorts of contexts. But I, I, I think the use of race implies that it's literally just a difference in the paint job, uh, that right. it is always skin deep, and it is not that. There is There are underlying genetic population structuring. They are not all the same at the genetic level. You see that in their DNA when you look at it. And, it, and if you've got phenotypic differences, which are kind of the weakest indicator, really, and you've got... You know, you've got biogeographical things to look at, you've got genetic things to look at, and you've got kind of phenotypic things to look at. And if all three things are telling you these are different snakes, it's because they're different snakes. Um, if I showed you a variegata from any of the three populations, you'd be able to tell me that that's what it was. Would you get would you right. get a Darwin carpet confused for any other carpet other than a Poplin carpet? Right. Or a no. northernish Cape York carpet? You might get those three confused because genetically there's almost no difference between any of them, but you wouldn't confuse that group with anything else. <laughs> sure, right. it's carpet pythons, and they're so you know phenotypically plastic that there are you'll get anomalies and weird animals that look out of place in places that pop out once in a while. But as a general trend, it's pretty easy to spot that, isn't it? A variegata. Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, I can I could tell you 99 times out of 100, I can tell you the difference between a Darwin and a New Guinea carpet, but. Those northern Cape York ones, you can't tell apart from poplin carpets. They are poplin carpets. There is almost no discernible genetic distinction between them or phenotypic distinction. It's the same thing. Right. Um, so that's one of the things. I meant to talk to Justin to make sure he was okay with me talking about this. <laughs> He's in the chat. <laughs> Ask him He's in the chat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not Justin. You'll all, you'll all read about it soon enough, I suppose. But, yeah. <laughs> You know, so you, you doubled the size of the book, right? I mean, pretty much, right? I don't know the actual page count yet. I think I'm I'm getting fearful that it might not hit 600 pages, and I kind of like, kind of was in love with the idea of 600 pages because it's right. just an insanely large thing. Right. Uh, oh, I think Riley had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Either happens. that or his Krebos are fighting one or I'll the other. 
Uh, but, hopefully uh, the former, not the latter. <laughs> we're, we've got a few of the chapters are back from our editor and everything laid out in PDF form with the photos in, and so you kind of get an idea of a page count. And uh, I, my estimate of the morph chapter is it's going to come in a little bit lighter than I thought it was in that it is likely to only be 130 pages or so. <laughs> I thought it'd be like 150, 160. It's only going to be 130-ish. Good probably. God. <laughs> yeah, no, it's its own book. Like, it's nuts. I've been collecting photographs for that for five years. I did get a, a good laugh out of somebody's responses. On now I got Australians hatching stuff right now, trying to, is it too late to put it in? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, on one of your posts on Facebook, like asking for pictures, one of the comments made me chuckle. He's like, you know, there's Google. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not how that works. <laughs> no, it isn't. Like, I can't, you can't just for pictures off the internet like no. <laughs> like, you have any cool pictures i stumbled onto that i've never been able to track down the person who took the actual picture right you got to get permission from the person exactly Not who posted it. that doesn't matter people sometimes don't it's like the person who clicked that button on that camera is the person i need to get permission from mm-hmm. to use the image that's how you're supposed to do it and it's yeah if you want free use photos you have to go into the advanced search settings and look at change the filters so you can get the, the fair use Free. And like five and they all suck and everyone yep. uses them <laughs> yep exactly yeah, a, we've got a few of those in there for little things and stuff mm-hmm. was the path of least resistance but you know if you want to it's never the thing you want like a wild brettles python eating a bird or something <laughs> like you don't get that like we've got that in the book but it wasn't you, know, you have to track down the people who uh who took those images and get that stuff so i got a question will uh and, and feel free if to say like you can't answer it in specifics, but will the uh, <laughs> will will there, will there be any diving into the the question of what Nova Guinea carpets are in this publication? No, but I'll tell you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> I, I sent a ton of samples to Warren Booth to run. I've got a few other concurrent projects. Uh, you know, a couple papers and at various, you know, stages or non-stages of completion uh, with Warren. I've known Warren forever. He's a great guy. So I talked Warren into running some carpet samples for the book and writing up a short phylogenetics chapter with our own testing just for the book. Because I thought, of course, that's the level of detail no one has ever in the history of reptile books has ever done that, gone that far. So that's why I wanted to do it, because no one's ever done that, gone that deep. Mm-hmm, right. Uh, in that body of samples I sent him, everything keyed out pretty much like I was anticipating it based on previous data and everything. I did send him samples of those because of my own curiosity. Uh, they're not going to be included because if you don't know the exact or have any really good idea where they're from geographically, it's not informative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they keyed out to be, I mean, extremely variegata. Like they were basically indistinguishable from regular Papuan carpets at a genetic level. There was almost no daylight whatsoever between them and a normal, because I sent them wild pop wing carpets. Uh, and there was basically keyed out to be the same snake. They're not the same snake, but they are. I've been keeping that under my hat for months. <laughs> so, so I have, I have, I have a few very petty reasons for doing that, but I guess the cat's out of the bag now. Well, I mean, to the people, to the people who care, the cat's out of the bag to the rest yeah, of the world. If they miss this. Well, yeah. It's like, there are a few people I was kind of like, yeah, I don't really want them to know about that. 
<laughs> so so you, you've got you've got some ij pop one carpet lovers here and so i think i think i speak for yeah. several of us when 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 we all say we we agree with you that they are totally different like they seem different like i got a pair of, which is crazy i got i got a pair from travis i've seen the individuals he's got from you yeah, I've seen all of them. He showed me all of them. He explained the different generations and everything, and I took a close look at them. And I have uh, a little bit more information on where they're probably from, but I don't want to say it on the air just because I've noticed years if I sort of like say something out of hand like that that isn't well supported, that people will take that and run with it, and then it becomes right. the gospel because Nick said it. Of course. <laughs> not what it is. Of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember the guy's name. There's a European guy who was just obsessed with figuring out this mystery, and I communicated with him for a period of years, and he did eventually dig up a location. Mm. But it was, you know, when you get like one person telling you one thing, and then uh and it's not back, you know, you can't corroborate it with a secondary source. And it's kind of like, eh, maybe. It's just hearsay. It is kind of. It wasn't really enough. I wasn't really going to be totally going to go to bat for it. Fair. Usually, with that track of that stuff down, I want to get like a couple of different people telling me the same thing who don't know that they're telling me that. Mm-hmm. You know, independent as best mm-hmm. you can. Of course. You can. I was never of able course. to get a second source. Uh, the location is in PNG, mm-hmm. but it's not so far like you have a contiguous patch of carpet pythons because you have a patch of eucalypt savannah in southern new guinea mm-hmm. about two-thirds of that patch is on the indonesian side but about right. one-third of it is it's basically between the indonesian border right. and the transfly delta that yeah it, literally that, that line goes right down the middle it's in that that third but it's it's like the middle of that third but it's not like all that far and you would expect to have gene flow Mm-hmm. across that distance so it doesn't really explain why they're so phenotypically different mm-hmm. explain why they're so oh. genetically similar but not why they're so genetically <coughs> right. different unless yeah. it's just but if, if you've ever bred morphs of any snake it's like we know as people who breed these things that we actually know things that the academics don't realize is like that sometimes you can have a single allele one copy of one allele that completely and utterly changes the phenotype of the animal in the extreme I mean, look at the cinnamon morph in ball pythons. One gene, if you get two copies of it, it makes you a completely black patternless snake and changes the shape of your skull. Changes <laughs> the shape of your snout. One gene does all that. Powerful. It's it doesn't if you were to look at if you were to examine genomically a super cinnamon ball and a regular ball, it would be exactly the same. You would not show up right. as any different at all. So it can be just that they are popwind carpets in a particular place that maybe isn't interbreeding anymore uh with the rest of them and just a couple of genes have changed and it's altered the phenotype mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that it's you know a deeply diverged lineage to be you have two concepts i guess you've got genotype and phenotype what are things sure. at a genetic level and what do they look like and those are not as closely linked as people think very often things that look very different from each other are also genetically very different from each other but not always right. sometimes you have things that are i mean if you look at two examples of, uh, of modern primates, chimpanzees and humans, humans, we all look vastly different depending on where in the world we're from, but we're genetically, there isn't two shits difference between any of us, <laughs> right. especially outside of Africa. Everybody's almost genetically identical outside of Africa and not that much different if you're in Africa, whereas chimpanzees to our eyes all look the same mostly, and they're vastly more genetically diverse. 
they have way more genetic diversity, but less phenotypic diversity. And we have evolved in phenotype very rapidly, and it has outpaced any sort of genetic uh, structuring. So those two <laughs> concepts are a bit divorced from each other. Yeah, right. Which something, is, something different with that group, though, for sure. Right. Yeah, there is. I don't know. It could just be that there's a freaking river that's not letting sure. us communicate and breed anymore or yeah. whatever. And it's probably something that is, you know, terminal Pleistocene, Holocene transition related because that's when the entire map of the world changed about 12,000 years ago. Rivers got drowned, you know, all kinds of lakes disappeared, dried up, like everything changed. And so the old patterns of gene flow between Cape York and both sides of New Guinea are completely off the table. Everything's different. And it's probably a situation where they were able to interbreed up until relatively recently. And then after that post, you know, early Holocene, Pleistocene transition, something has occurred that is now, you know, preventing or making that more difficult, which is keeping their genes in their population. It's like the earliest stages of speciation. If it were allowed to continue for fast forward 50,000 years, you might have something truly different, but sure. it's just very early in that process. Interesting. Yeah, That's no just the hypothesis. Right. And then, you know, it goes back to kind of what you've already touched on a little bit, and you and I have talked about a lot, um, which, you know, it just depends on what you personally, as a human with opinions, consider a species. But that doesn't mean that it's not something. Even if it's not a different species, it can still be something that is different. And that's right. still yeah. valid. <laughs> well, what's irritating with me about taxonomy is the lack of any sort of standard whatsoever mm -hmm. uh we apply vastly different standards to just different things at, just at you know on a whim right um, if we applied the same standard of genetic divergence required for speciation in that the guys writing the books on papers on australian pythons if we applied their standard to hominids all the great apes would be homo sapiens chimps bonobos we'd all be the same species right. last i checked we're not even the same genus because we apply a vastly different standard to us yeah, for sure. You know, for sure. You know, there's, I mean, there's as much genetic distinction between two different groups of chimpanzees as there is between a Neanderthal and a modern, anatomically modern human. But they're a separate species because we don't apply these things equally. Right. And we actually right. apply it in a more nonsensical way in that there's a correlation between how fast something evolves and its reproductive output over time. Uh, chance mutations that are the building blocks of evolution those happen only when you reproduce there's every time another generation comes into existence mm -hmm. every time another zygote is formed basically there's an opportunity for a random mutation so organisms that reproduce a lot of babies like fruit flies where you have like multiple generations a year and there's thousands that just reproduce exponentially can evolve very quickly because the odds of a beneficial mutation popping up are a lot greater if you have you know 5,000 descendants in a year is whereas if you only have one, yeah. you're going to go slower. Yeah. If you look at that, you know, things like larger pythons in particular don't really reproduce. You're, you're slower to mature. You're an apex predator in those ecosystems. You're not putting out that many, anywhere near that many offspring. So the tendency would be to evolve at a slower pace. And we can, I can point out obvious examples of that. Like if you look at a Dumeril's boa and look at a boa constrictor, they're both obviously boas. You can see pattern commonality in a Dumeril's boa with a red tail boa. And you're talking about lineages that would have split on the order of 40 million years ago. And in 40 million years, they still got common pattern elements. Look at most Australian pythons will have a double neck stripe and a little bit. Look at the Antaresia head pattern in that double neck stripe on a Cape York spotted python. Then go look at a carpet python. 
Then look at a juvenile green tree python. You'll see that same pattern, the same pattern elements in all those species, which we know diverged 15 to 20 million years ago, but they still retain that. That's how slow that process is in them. Mm -hmm. So if anything, a smaller genetic divergence is more significant in a reptile that evolves slower. It's more significant. It's significant of a longer, uh, you know, a longer period of time. It's more significant and they tend to weight it less unless it's a leaf litter skink, in which case every damn skink in every little, you know, <laughs> there's no problem. But for some reason, the pythons have to all be the same. <laughs> so huh. I, I don't, so that's the longest answer ever about uh, my good friend, Scott Iper's, uh, <laughs> I like Scott a lot. Scott's a great guy, and he's a he's been he's a great photographer. And he's been very helpful writing books to be friends with Scott. He takes great pictures, and he's very generous in that regard. Uh, awesome, that's you know, true. I, yes, there is a weird thing though with Australians that they just all want to think carpet pythons are all the same thing. <laughs> Everything else is different. But like, if you ask, I, I've had this conversation with Scott. Like the last time when he was right after he was on. Uh, with you guys talking about basically all carpets are the same. He sent me a paper. He sent me two papers in the last like three months, and they're like on new frog species that are exactly the same. Di they're exactly the same as diamond pythons and coast southern coastal carpet pythons. Where you see like there's one. Oh, they split it up into three species. Where it's like the the northern one, which is equates to your southern coastals. You've got a southern one that equates to your diamond python. Then you've got a transition zone that's the intergrade form between them. And a lot of times they'll name that as a separate species. It's like it's the same exact biogeographical pattern. Right. And no one questions it if it's frogs, but it's pythons are crazy. It's like it's the same, <laughs> it's the same thing. It's and that's the same that's pattern why, in, in everything. That's why it really pays to uh, to be a little bit more, you know, open and, and look at other taxa as well in the same corridors. You know, like you're saying, it, it's going to follow certain trends. I, I, I think that's... I do a lot of that. You can learn a tremendous amount by looking at other scientific disciplines like geology and botany and all these sorts of things, paleoclimatology. Uh, and you can learn a lot uh, kind of by look, working around a problem uh, because almost to, I mean, I mean, almost completely, the same evolutionary drivers that are pushing speciation and are pushing things to adapt are shared by all the things that live in that habitat. Like, right. so if a biogeographic barrier comes into existence that stops animals moving, it's stopping all the animals from moving. You know, <laughs> if the temperature, it's, it's like, it affects all those things. So the biogeographical distribution patterns and speciation patterns you see of one thing generally are reflected in almost everything that shares that habitat. If you look at bio, the uh, biogeography of cassowaries, it's the same as chondros. It's the same as crocodile skinks. It's the same as scrub pythons. It's the same because they're in the same forests and the same pressures are on all of them. So right. it's not surprising that, you know, there's a lot of species that have show a genetic distinction above and below the Black Mountain Corridor, not mm -hmm. just carpet. It's a bunch of things. That same variegata thing where you've got them in Northern Territory, Cape York and New Guinea that, you know, what else shares that exact same thing, frilled dragons exactly mm. where the cape york and in every case we have that three-way distribution you'll see the genetic evidence will say exactly the same thing that cape york and new guinea are indistinguishable from each other and that northern territory is close but is a little different and you'll see that in water pythons you can't tell them apart the cape york and the new guinea ones are genetically the same northern territory is a little different frill dragons same thing carpet pythons same thing and the reason for that is 
all that was dry land. The entire Sahal Shelf was exposed up to just, you know, 12,000 years ago. When the sea level starts to rise, as, those, as glacial ages end and the sea level starts to come up, mm-hmm. it starts to flood and inundate that entire area. There is a large lake called Lake Carpentaria, right where the Gulf of Carpentaria is now. It's a brackish lake. And you would have a good habitat on either side of that for carpet pythons and presumably plenty of gene flow. When the marine, when ocean water starts to flood that low-lying area, it starts in the west and moves eastward over a few thousand years. Mm-hmm. So what happens is once the marine inundation gets to the Lake Carpentaria and Lake Carpentaria becomes the Gulf of Carpentaria, at that point, that severs the gene flow from Northern Territory to New Guinea and the Cape York. That becomes separate at that point. That happens some thousands of years before the final severing of New Guinea and Australia and Cape York. They stay connected for three, 4,000 years longer before that's connection. So that's why those two populations are always closer together and the close cousin is the one in Northern Territory. That is so freaking cool. <laughs> yeah. <love> yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> you see that? It's I mean, pretty badass. That's what it, that's what the evidence is. The evidence for that is overwhelming. Like that's not mm-hmm. like people can argue with my opinions on taxonomy and that's a completely legitimate. I mean, I love Scott, but he doesn't have to agree with me. Like these, his opinion is <laughs> his opinion. Mine is mine. It's like, and there's no right answer. It is entirely, right. uh, but you can't, some of these things are sort of beyond debate at this point, like that, that happened and that's the effect. And that shows this, and you see the signature of that that is no one's really arguing that. Uh, the argument, the central argument of taxonomy is always, uh, you know, how different is different enough to be a different species? Where do you draw the line? It's not that these are exactly the same. It's that where do you draw the line? That is an entirely judge- a judgment call. Right, uh, right. I think that in general, you do more harm by assuming things are all the same than you do by assuming they're different. Um, you know, there's a lot of like, look at the Chinese giant salamanders. They're very much an endangered ah. species. Yes. And they started farming them. Awesome. They made bazillions of giant Chinese salamanders. Great. Right. Except they didn't <laughs> except they didn't realize the time they were lumped they all lumped them all together as the one species. And it turns out, oh, it's actually multiple species. And now all of these tens of bazillions you've been made of a bunch of freaking hybrids. Are all worthless to the That's wild the population. I mean, as far as they're worthless to the wild population. Had they taken the splitters approach and they all turned out to be the same? You no harm, no foul. Had you, mm-hmm. but you, one is leads you down the road to potential problems. One is just might be making more work for yourself, but not. It's not going to hurt anything. I've often had the exact same thought. I mean, as far as as taxonomy pertains to conservation work specifically, you know, I've yet to hear an instance where lumping was beneficial. Whereas you know, splitting at least gives you a better chance. You know, even if it's not a separate species, isn't a separate population still worth preserving? Then sorry, right? Exactly. There's several spaces, to, pages devoted to this in the book, where you're trying to drive home this nice. these concepts of taxonomy. And one part mentioned that most people don't realize there's over 30 different species definitions. Over 30 completely yeah. different definitions of what constitutes a species. None of them agree with each other. Yeah. And, <laughs> There's always kind of the flavor of the month, which has lately been the phylogenetic species concept. But, you know, is it right? There's 29 others. Right. Which one's right? right. There is, they're all right or they're all wrong. It doesn't, right. there's just whichever one there you want to use. There is no right, right? At the end of the there day, is, it's just a bunch of monkeys looking at a snapshot of dynamic yeah. processes and I trying to, to put it all up. 
I personally tend to, and Justin does as well, uh, I tend to be more of a devotee of what is called the evolutionary species concept. And that basically takes into account, because if you have a spe- you have old species and you've got young species that are just now taking their first steps towards being uh, you know, on the road of being a species, and then you've got others that are very you know, deeply diverged lineages that are old species. You know, right. We are, you know, seven million years removed from our last common ancestor with chimpanzees. That's we are an old species. Our lineage is old in that context in relation to them. Uh, the, you know, the evolutionary species concept takes into account like, OK, are these are you interbreeding now at all? And will you, are you likely to in the future? So things that it basically things are species that have that are on their own separate evolutionary trajectory. They might not have gotten very far along in that trajectory, but they are on their own path and they are never to return to their parent population. Right. Uh, and, you know, I like that because it denotes things like, you know, there are a lot of insular populations in Indonesia and islands around New Guinea that are, how different are these? They're clearly not, they're not ever going to interbreed again. They are on their own trajectory. Have they been on there very long? How different, you know, to assume that that's exactly the same thing, you know, I think is I don't agree with that. I think uh, I think better to err on the side of caution in that regard. I like subspecies, and if you believe in subspecies, then there's a bunch of carpet python ones because there's you know it's not there are well known biogeographical barriers to animal movements that stop or limit gene flow. Uh, and the biggest challenge that caused all the rewrites of the book was you have like an existing sort of subspecies structure and architecture that is based entirely on color and pattern and nothing else on what they look like. Uh, and then you've got a bunch of academics that think they're all the same thing. Uh, part of that is they don't want to wade into a very, very difficult, complicated thing. And now having waded into it for the last four years, I understand why it's a, it's, it's a really, it's a difficult thing with a lot of moving parts to try to make sense of. Uh, it's way easier to say, Oh, they're all the same. That's, that's but that's kind of a cop out because they're not the same. Uh, you've got well-defined clades within the Spilota complex, if you will. Uh, so trying to sort that all out and come up with a taxonomic arrangement that actually agreed with the biogeographical information and the genetic information, that was the challenge, and that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so endless hours of studying the various fairly well-documented biogeographic barriers of uh, Australia, uh, and wouldn't you know it, they line up exactly with the genetic breakpoints between all these things. Like, go figure, right? Uh, <laughs> like, the the easy one of the easiest ones that's not the Black Mountain Corridor is uh, the Carpentaria Gap. The southernmost edge of the Gulf of Carpentaria is an arid area, and it stops everything. Nothing really crosses that. So what you find on both sides is two reciprocally non-monophyletic lineages. You've always got, they're different. You can see that in their DNA on both sides. Might be the same species still, because it's a relatively recent development, but they are separate. Right. Uh, and you see that, you just see that over and over and over again. So that one, uh, you know, there's a bunch of those. Uh, another thing we did this time, Justin really got kind of uh, pretty obsessed with it, actually, uh, is there are a lot of river systems. River systems are basically the highways by which animals move. It's, animals will disperse the easiest way possible. Frankly, the easiest way you can possibly do disperse is to get flushed down a river and <laughs> wash up somewhere. But even that, not even so much that as 
rivers provide a habitat corridor because, oh, there's a water table and there's prey and there's trees right. and there's it's the easiest way to good productivity, uh, riparian vegetation. Yeah. Yes. In Australia, you've got a lot of very arid country that has dry riverbeds, but there's still a water table that's closer to the surface in those areas. So you'll still see it looks really dry, but there'll be like trees on like a dry river course. Mm-hmm. And even that, like if you look at the distribution for inland carpets, it's almost entirely along this spider's web of dry rivers that only have water flowing in them very, very occasionally. Uh, but that is the, oh, what's going on? I see Miley, Miley's looking, is that the blacktail? <laughs> yeah. I've got, I've got my crevos together right now and they're making noise. Oh, man. They're not adept climbers. <laughs> no. Sorry. But anyway, so yeah. mapping like river systems both that exist now and using bathymetric data to figure out where rivers used to be that flowed into the Gulf of Car- the Lake Carpentaria Basin and all this stuff. Uh, because there are river systems that connected New Guinea and Australia that aren't there anymore because they're underwater. Figuring right. out dispersal mechanisms, you know, and so it's not just where they are, but there's a bit of discussion as to how they got there in the first place hmm. in these various places. Uh, my only fear with the new book is that it'll confuse people because it's, it is, it's tough stuff. Like it's hardcore. Like I'm not going to lie to you. Like it is, <laughs> like if you yes. want to be, if you want to be a hobbyist and you want to keep pretty snakes in a plastic box and you know how to get them to breed and get the baby speeding, all that's going to be easy to access. But some of these things are pretty heavy stuff like it's not it's not light reading in like well the evolutionary history chapter now is likely to be well over 30 pages of just text without images and graphs and all this kind of stuff just the text file is likely to be over 30 pages uh the goal is i got to finish that tomorrow got about a half a page left to right is all because we wanted we decided to add on to the uh discussion of intergrade zones on the count of discovering a few different ones so it's so you got to go with all that. So turns out, awesome. you know, you have, very, very cool. you've got the Murray Darling Basin is not quite as sealed off as you, as people you probably previously thought of it. You've got areas of contact where coastal carpets are interbreeding with inland carpets and inland carpets are interbreeding with diamond pythons in very limited areas. Uh, so getting that sort of out. What is he doing? Riley's going to work. I mean, I think we have to. I think he's separating them out. (laughs) So for context, if people don't know, last year, Riley's female almost got eaten uh, during breeding attempts. So he's a little gun shy. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of Kribos are they? Those are the black tails. Black tails, yeah. I got a pair of yellow tails. I don't really enjoy them. They're (laughs) super flighty, spastic. Every time you open the tub, they go shooting out. Like they're yeah, can't feed them anything big. Yeah. Got to feed them just like three fuzzies. Like it's just the weirdest. So the opposite of a python, so. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I I just, I was telling you, Nick, last time we were chatting, I finally have dipped my feet with Trimarcon with Eastern Indigos, and they're definitely not like a python. That's for sure. It's almost more Ooh. like a monitor without legs. Like a monitor. <laughs> yeah, or... it's exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah, these things are high maintenance. <laughs> I mean, yeah for sure but anyway man i got it oh go ahead eric no 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 go ahead 
Oh, I was just going to say the biogeography stuff is one of the things I'm most excited to read about in the book because it's something that hasn't been on my radar at all as like a herpetoculturalist until talking to you, Nick. And now I see it everywhere. You know, I'm always wondering about it now. You know, when I look at anything in a landscape. (laughs) These super glaringly obvious examples of this phenomenon that people in the hobby don't catch on to. Like, like. If you look at like broadly wherever you find carpet pyth- or scrub pythons, carp- you know, py- arboreal pythons in that part of the world, you will also find a blue-tailed skink, a blue-tongued skink at the bottom of those same trees, and a cockatoo in the t- in those trees, mm. almost always. And in every case, there's like there's even overlap. Like if you looked at like uh, what's the smallest scrub python? Oh, a tanabar python. What cockatoo lives in those same trees? Oh, it's a Goffin's cockatoo. Is it a coincidence that the smallest cockatoo shares the same tree as the smallest scrub python? Probably not. What's the smallest blue-tongued skink? Oh, it's the Tanabar blue-tongued skink. Is that a coincidence? Probably not. And all these things are small. (laughs) Because it's those same forces. You know, if you look at, like, you know, yeah, there, there's just a ton of examples of these sort. Look at a Centralian blue tongue skink, and then look at a Brettles python. Like, right. It's the same. It's the same paint job. Like it's <laughs> yeah. right on the same place. It's like you yeah. see this sort of evolutionary convergence between vastly different things. They're all painted uh, by the by the same drivers, like you're saying. They, they are. It's yeah. uh, so. It's amazing. Or, you know, over and pill, over and over. Pill bar rock monitor too. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, <clears throat> That's a that's a good looking. Lizard. I did get a question from somebody, Nick, and I know I've talked to you about this before, but I figured since you're here, you would you could answer this. So, why do Poplin carpets like to stay in their water bowls as opposed to all other carpet pythons? Is the thoughts on keepers? <laughs> I. It's the bane of my them. existence. Like I'm, I'm starting to breed fewer Darwin carpets for that same reason. This is like it's like. They just habitually swamp their cage, flood the freaking cage, even to the point of soaking so long they fuck their skin up sometimes. It's like, yeah. what are you doing? Although, I mean, there's no no one's ever done any field work to why this happens, but the most logical thing is that both of those places, southern New Guinea and, you know, top end, are a seasonal floodplain environment full of billabongs. You have a, you have a dry savanna, and then it flo- you have a flooded savanna for part of the year, and it's probably to do with that, where you're just like... Easiest place in the world to hide is a flooded and some grass is partly underwater and you just soak it all the time. So it's probably an instinctive, uh, uh, you know, an instinct to hide in water because that is an easy thing to do in those habitats. And they overdo it uh, and to the point of driving us insane. Yes. <laughs> some of those Darwins, like the albinos especially, like, I only give them a two ounce water bowl anyway. I've got some of these with like a half ounce water bowl that's inside of a two ounce water bowl. So if they spill the little tiny half ounce of water, the other one catches it to keep the cage dry. It's like just it's hmm. really frustrating sometimes. But uh, interesting. So <laughs> I think their poplin carpets do it. Uh, Darwin's are actually worse. They do it just as much. Huh? I need a larger sample size then. <laughs> Mine don't touch their fucking water. It's crazy. Well, keep breeding those ones. I I would love to if I could. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Riley struggles you know, with that one. He can't crack the code. Dude, I don't know I what the fuck it, it is. You know, it's usually just fresh babies. Once they get six, eight months old or a year, they that tendency tends to go away. Mm-hmm. And they're not as adept to do it. But little tiny babies, if they can fit their whole body in it, that's what they're doing. 
So constantly trying to only put a little water in the bowl. So if they put their whole body in it, it doesn't overflow and soak the paper yep. towel and whatnot. Yep. Interesting. I uh I have three F ones that I produced a couple of years ago that I have the David Brahms elevated perches with the 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 deli cup suspended. And I put the the shallowest deli cup that fits in there and I fill it like a third of the way. Because every time I change it, those bastards get in there and the, it, it's like it's prone to flood if I fill it up anymore. So I don't know. Apparently yeah. I sent Laurie I sent Laurie a broken snake. It uh she has eight poplin carpets and the only one that soaks excessively is the one that she got from me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Laurie. Perfect. Uh it's well hydrated, it's not Nick, I, I got a question for you. So, you know, without going into the detail, um, I know that this has obviously been a lifelong obsession for you, right? So was there anything with the new book that you went into the process thinking in your head was going to be the case that new information proved you completely wrong? Were you greatly surprised about anything that you found this time? Um, without diving into the details, if, if you don't want to. Not a, one thing, uh, but mm-hmm. I keep up on, you know, whatever papers that are relevant as they come out over the time in between versions of the book. So I, I was aware of all that data anyway. So I, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I had a pretty good idea how our own stuff would shake out. Uh, one thing that it was actually in the data from the, from 2003 to 2014, uh, there are two papers uh, that looked at them genomically, and it buried in that data. If you, I, I, I somehow didn't really notice it the first time around, but upon subsequent uh, review of those papers for this, you noticed a definite, uh, a definite, uh, another population of genetically distinct carpet pythons that hitherto I had not really noticed that they were that distinct. Mm-hmm. And they are very distinct. What? Oh, nothing. Uh, well, I mean, it, I guess like it's not like a state secret. I mean, it's like these are public. A couple of these are papers, pretty easy. You can get open access. Just get them on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you find is that the inland carpets from those sort of Flinders ranges, Gammon ranges. You ever notice those are weird looking and don't look like other inland carpets? It's because they're not, and they're not confined to just that. They actually make a pre like. Uh, a, pretty much a straight line through the through the gamut, flinders and gammons, and then up damn near to Mount Isa through that pretty arid habitat. You have a narrow like strip of inland carpets, if you will, that are genetically quite distinct from all the others. Like so distinct that you could make a pretty compelling argument that they shouldn't be inland carpets. Right, but they are their own thing. Uh, they all look like that all the way up too. Even these most obscure places you find them way out in the middle of nowhere. They all look are phenotypically distinct, and like if you look at the like a phylogenetic tree with a bunch of inland carpet samples, you'll see two different groupings. You'll see two different clades within that. And so, so they are pretty distinct. I wasn't expecting them to be quite as distinct. Uh, very very cool. Right. I'll I think the camas are going to be a bit different, but that that extended past those mountain ranges in a more expansive way. Way. Justin so says, leave something for the people to read. <laughs> Who said that? Uh, Julander. So I'll take uh, it easy on that, but yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, when they, read, when they see the range map in the book, it's actually in two different colors. There'll be two different shades. You know that these are 
we're leaving them in this in this pile over here, but they're it should be known that they're not exactly the same, and that you know you can't solve all things in one book. Uh, that's not how science works. You pretty much sure. you move the ball forward as best you can to the best of your ability, and then other people will pick it up and take it further. And it's it's never the final word on anything. Um, yeah, and this certainly won't be either. But it, it, I will say one thing: I'll be a little proud of, and it, I know that people are going to come out of the woodwork to disagree because it's 2021 and it's the internet and that's what people do um, is they come out of the woodwork to disagree with you about everything. But for <laughs> the very first time in the entire history of carpet Python taxonomy, there will be a phylogenetic arrangement that completely lines up with the genetic underpinnings of that group. The, the boundaries between putative subspecies line up with biogeographic barriers and genetic clusters. Mm -hmm. There's something to it. It's not just color and pattern that it's backed up by the evidence awesome. that you can argue that this amount of distinction at the genetic level isn't enough for X, Y, or Z. You can make that argument, but you can't argue that the subspecies as we have defined them are based on nothing but color and pattern because it's, that's unequivocally not true. Um, so hmm. again, but since there's yeah. no rules, you can argue it's just a matter of where different people want to draw the line, I suppose. Right. Well, I, that's awesome, man. I, I can't wait. <laughs> I think I speak yeah. for all of us when I say that. <laughs> oh, 100%. I did send Eric a sneak preview of a small section kind of that tees up a, a couple of chapters because I just wanted like an outside opinion. Does, does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Sometimes It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes like, you know, Justin and I have been pretty immersed in this for a decade or over a decade now. In four years, we've been digging with this. And so sometimes when you've been that immersed in it for that long, you kind of can lose sight on like, because you end up understanding it so well, you don't think you just assume on an unconscious level, everybody else does, even though it's clearly not true. So you kind of, I, I kind of worry that like we're writing something that while Justin and I can look at it and it makes perfect sense to us because we've been reading this for years and working on it forever, that it needs to be accessible for people that haven't been doing that. They need to be able to read that and interpret that. And it needs to make sense. So I, I sent uh, Eric a little, a little bit just to make sure we weren't completely off our out over our skis too far. No, <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> very very That's good. That odd father privilege, man. <laughs> Got to have some perk to this ten year shindig. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It's been a long, a long time. Yeah. As long as bread lie are still bread lie, all is well. <laughs> oh, that's that's unequivocal and unchangeable. That is that is never going to <laughs> they were never a subspecies ever. No. Like they were described by Graham Gow in 1981 as Python bread lie, because they were still in Python at the time. They were described initially named as a full species. They were never ever formally made a subspecies by anybody. Right. There's yeah. just a few Australian authors that just like, ah, it's just a carpet snake. We're going to call it a subspecies based on no evidence whatsoever. Like, or you can, you can, you can rest easy on that. They are extremely <laughs> well, uh, them and Imbricata are extremely deeply diverged from all the others. There are, you, there's no question that Imbricata are a full species and the Bradley are full species. You can quibble about how many subspecies or if there's subspecies of Spilota if you want, uh, but you can't, no one's going to question those who, they're that, they're way off. 
uh, very deeply diverged lineages that no, even the lumpers can't argue with that. That's and that's why I'll be happy. I'll know my work on Earth is done when people stop saying, you know, Spilota Imbricata when that goes away <laughs> completely. Still, once in a while, crops up, but yeah. And then we got to get him over here. <laughs> oh, not hold oh. my breath on that. Like, I, oh. <laughs> I oh, went my to heart. West Coast and wanted to find a wild one, and the only one we found was smashed on the road. I finally got to see my first wild, my first Invercada at a pet shop in Perth. Like, <laughs> we had like a half hour to kill before going to the airport. I'm like, I wonder if they have, they sure enough had two wild caught Invercada at this pet shop, and they let us play with them. So we at least got to see an Invercada, play with an Invercada. Nice. Yeah. Uh, How much did they cost? How much what? did they cost? How yeah, much did they cost? Much, Do you remember? I can't quite recall. I don't think it was all that much. Hmm. There's a medium sized one and like a smaller juvenile. Uh, they it's, were it, wild caught, legally wild caught, and, and but it's like oh, I got to hold and play with an Invercada, so yeah, okay, yeah. the airport. Yeah. I need to get back to Western Australia. I need to cross that one off the bucket list. Yeah, you got to get Bradley off the. You got to you got to get Bradley off the list, man. That's that's your snake. They're, they're not an easy because a lot of these things like Bradley, you can't. It's hard to you can't really road cruise them as effectively. You got to beat the bush. And walk through you got to come with us. It's, we it's found Owen Pelly, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever thought that maybe you used up all of your herpetological luck you're ever going to have in one? <laughs> no, man. You getting skunked forever? No, no. no. All yeah, right. we've been. I'm knocking on wood right now, but you know, I think it's that little Rob Stone man. He, that little magic hobbit. He works magic. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have been there not once but twice on two different trips, and I haven't found anything, mm. nothing at all. But uh, I think it's just luck. Lucky. I mean, we found a Python. That was pretty just cool. Time and place, man. Right time, right place. That's it. It's luck, yeah. you know. I wished that Owen Pelly into that tree, man. I just wished it and wished it and wished it. And there it was. It's one of those things. You could go there like you could you could go there every night for like five years and find nothing. And then some like, random tourist just walks up on day one. Oh look, what's that? Like it's like it's just it's right there. Like, well, this is what me and Rob have figured out, right? When you're herping, and the, I think the, the key to the s- success with the Owen Pelly Python was the fact that we stayed in the same spot for a for what three or four nights rather than moving all over the place. Because the first time we went to Australia, we were just, we we're every, you know, you know, every uh, day and night, we're just moving all around as opposed to like just going back to that same spot, you know. I don't know. Yeah. I did call uh, it before the trip. <laughs> what? I did. I called it before the trip and nobody believed me. That's what Justin just said. <laughs> I did call it in the trip. But. That's, uh, so, do you have rough scales in the book? Yeah, and Owen okay. Pellies. And Owen Pellies. All right. Yeah, we added a chapter on Owen Pellies. Uh, the most recent phylogenetic work shows that you have kind of a Morelia clade, and that Owen Pellies are in the Morelia clade, as are rough scale pythons. They basically are just the first two branches <laughs> off of that lineage. So you've got the lineage, the, the Morelia line, that'll give rise to the green python complex, the carby python complex. But the very first offshoot of that line, the di- first group that splits off is Owen Pelly's. And then about 10 minutes after that happens, Carinata splits off. 
which means that Carinata and uh, Owen Pelenzis are uh, they are they split off before the split between Carpets and Condro, so they are equidistant. They're in between those two groupings. They split off before that. So interesting. Gotcha. Okay. You know, behaviorally, they seem to be, have more affinities with Carpet Python, with the Carpet Python side, just kind of phenotypically and lifestyle wise. But right. That's why a rough scale python seems like it's halfway between being a carpet and a chondro because it is it is halfway between it split off before they split from each other. Okay. Looking at those sorts of animals are interesting because if you wanted to get an idea of what the last common ancestor of those two line of the chondros and carpets looked like, it's probably not that far off. Right. Right. And what do you see in the ruffies? Oh, a double neck stripe. Go figure. Right. Because the last <laughs> common ancestor. <laughs> Very cool. What about as far as, um, uh, you know, one of the things that Justin talked to me about was that you guys included a lot of wild pictures of carpet pythons, which I think is just the greatest it's thing only ever. Only wild carpet pythons. That's the thing. Like the hardest Excellent. part was in the, you have 10 species chapters covering all the carpet python species, subspecies, Oenpalensis and Carinata. So you have 10 of those natural history chapters. And there are no captive snakes. No way I lie. There's one captive snake total in the entire thing. There is a rough scale python showing its threat display with a mouth agape, which you're never going to get a wild one to do that. Like, so that's the only captive snake. Every picture in all these chapters, they are all wild snakes in the wild doing wild snake stuff. Excellent. Uh, there are captive snakes, the captive animals. So you're not going to see a bright, flashy jungle carpet in that section. You're going to see you know, wild ones. And you're going to see northern coastal carpets in that section because they're the same thing. So right. that's, uh, you know, they're, uh, yeah, but they're all, they're all wild. Uh, the captive snakes are confined to the chapters that deal with captivity. So the morph chapter, it's all captive snakes. There's 149 pictures in the morph chapter, 149, and they're all captives. Uh, obviously, uh, in the husbandry and reproduction chapters, the introduction, you know, in those other those sorts of chapters, there are captive snakes. It's mostly captive snakes. Uh, in the evolutionary history chapter, it's predominantly wild snakes, and in the species account chapters, it's only wild snakes. Sweet, and what wild snakes are doing. So that made it a lot harder, though, because it's, <laughs> well, I mean, I could make another. We could make another awesome book about diamond pythons with the pictures we didn't use because there's so many good diamond python pictures in the wild and same with like southern coastals uh, real mcdowell those are there's a lot because it's just a highly dense human population and they're in people's yards so you get a lot of pictures of wild southern form coastal carpets uh you know you get 20 coastal carpets for every one darwin carpet because outside of the city of Darwin itself, you have super low, very, very low population densities. There are snakes, and right. the snakes themselves seem to occur at slightly lower density. There's not as many snakes per hectare uh, as you would expect in, you know, in like diamond pythons or coastal carpet pythons. So right. they're, they're a little thinner on the ground and there's no people. So you don't find, you don't get a ton of images of wild ones, especially from far flung places. So there's like an animal behind you, Lucas. I see like a tail. Yeah, that's my dog. <laughs> well, it's weird because it's like a disembodied tail with no body. I don't even know what kind of animal it is. Uh, he's kind of floppy. Oh, there we go. Uh, All right. he's, he's not a reptile, but I do love him very much. 
That makes sense. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, you don't get to, and, you know, get pictures of wild New Guinea carpets. That's a challenge. Oh, I bet. I <laughs> yeah, bet. For sure. We ended up re- having to rework the chapters and everything. We ended up with a super abundance of pictures because when you accept that Cape York and New Guinea are the same snake, then you've got a lot. You don't get a right. lot of Cape York wild Cape York carpet pictures, and you don't get a lot of wild New Guinea carpet pictures, but between them, you have a decent number. Mm. As it, Lucky I found a met up with a guy. He's a, a field, uh, does field work in PNG on bats. Oh, wow. He takes pictures of everything. He had a ton of, like, wild carpet pythons around Port Moresby. That is awesome. There from just, yeah. He wasn't looking for them, but just being there during the field season doing his work, you would stumble onto them on a fairly regular basis. I got quite a few localities uh, from there. Turns out the Indonesian ones are the hardest ones to get a picture of in the wild. Hmm. The ones we all we were, have in the house, like find one of those in the wild is the hardest picture to find. We yeah. uh, we were talking to uh, Mark O'Shea about that, and he was showing us pictures of him with just handfuls of carpet pythons from Papua New Guinea. <laughs> He's just like holding handfuls of them. Yeah. Just like, wow, okay. Well, the only... Around Port Moresby, you can have a decent population of them and everything, but there's a lot of these other places where they might be, there's just nobody home. I mean, yeah. I, I, do you think that it's possible that the, I, I mean, I know it's been talked about in the book. It was talked about in a Barker's book, or actually it was talked about in the first book about how it's probably not accurate uh, what the Barker's put in the book, but do you think it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility that there could be carpet pythons on the other side of the mountain range in Papua New Guinea. I don't believe. I mean, there's no, I think why would they be different than say scrubs or green trees? What would, why would, why would they not? Okay. The, the distribution pattern you see in scrub pythons in New Guinea is Uh vastly different than that in carpet pythons. Um, Okay. This gets into some other papers, uh, uh, other stuff of, involved in working on so i don't i gotta kind of figure out yeah, how to yeah, work. Yeah. right but um what you find is that uh, it is not a situation like on new guinea where you know you know python species a just like gets to new guinea some kind of way and then somehow manages to hop over mountains and around things and island hop and get all over the place it right. is more likely vastly more likely that what you have is new guinea is not a single contiguous landmass. New Guinea is basically the geologic equivalent of like a five car pileup on the freeway. <laughs> New Guinea is the composite. Um, okay. <laughs> the reason why New Guinea has all these weird different species in these different places is because the topography, New Guinea has a bunch of weird mountain ranges that intersect at weird angles all over the place. It's all chopped up because all the pieces of it were separate islands at one point. The Southern lowlands of New Guinea, everything south of the mountains in New Guinea is actually Australia. That's the lead. What that is, that area is called the Papuan Basin, but it is actually the leading northernmost edge of the Australian plate. So it's Australian crust that is like low lying and got pushed up when it hit. Basically, the Australian plate is moving north and the Pacific plate is moving west. So it's going this way and Australia is going like this. And they're hitting at this okay. weird angle hmm. that collision pushed up those mountains which elevated the lower the lowlands of australia which were underwater above water mm-hmm. there's a reason why you see australian species in the southern part of, of new guinea because the southern part of new guinea is literally is australia i have, I have a question there 
did that uh did that occur when those land masses were uh not under underwater was that before sea levels rose the lower part would have presumably been underwater and by the tectonic okay. uplift of that mountain range it brought it up and out got it okay okay so that's how you get the southern part of new guinea and the mountain range where do you get the northern shore of new guinea the northern shore of New Guinea was a, apparently a couple of different arcs of islands on the Pacific plate that are moving east to west that slammed into groups of islands that like slammed in and accreted along the coast, building up that narrow northern rainforest corridor on the other side of the mountains. That's two different island chains that basically slammed into the north, pushing that northern bit of crust up. And then lastly, the Bird's Head Peninsula was a separate island on the Australian plate. It's connected to New Guinea now. But as Australia drifted north, it was Australia's here and this little island is here and they're on the same plate. The whole thing drifts north and it currently at this particular time in geologic history is forms a peninsula on New Guinea. But it was had its own genetic identity prior to that in the sense that these pythons, a lot of these species that are on those different areas were already right. there. They dispersed over water evolved in isolation on these different island groups, then those islands they were riding around on crashed back into each other, pushing up mountain ranges, and they have maintained uh, separate identities, which is how you get multiple scrub python species, multiple chondro species, and all this stuff in one island, because they were they became their unto their own species status in isolation, and their islands they were on came back together. Interesting. Well, that well, makes I, sense. Look at the, okay. the Huon Peninsula in, in the northern coast of... Uh, Above the Bird's, Bird's Tail Peninsula, there's the Huon Peninsula that kind of juts out, points towards the, towards the Bismarck Archipelago. That was an island in the Bismarck Archipelago. The Bismarck Archipelago is on the Pacific Plate, and it's moving west. It's getting closer and closer to New Guinea, and one of the leading islands of it was smashed into it and has pushed up a highland area, and it is now the Huon Peninsula of New Guinea, but previously was its own island. And the fauna, mm -hmm. wouldn't you know, on the Huon Peninsula is kind of weird and distinct, isn't it? Right. Uh, huh. These are questions like, you know, the Condor <laughs> paper that came out that showed all the different species, or they said subspecies, but there should be species. We all know that. Even they know that probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they didn't really, I was a little disappointed, they didn't go into it at all. Like, how did that get to, how did that happen? You know, they didn't make any attempt at all to explain how that sort of partitioning and these different species came into existence. And so, working on the scrub python paper and working on this book it's like i kind of like digging that stuff up and there is enough data to draw some conclusions that it's the same sorts of forces um, but hmm. you know yeah. what disperses more easily than an arboreal snake right you know, <laughs> it would be an arboreal snake that can reproduce parthenogenically probably like it doesn't take right. a lot necessarily to form a new population and you know if you're like a terrestrial lizard it's pretty hard to disperse over water because finding a giant mat of storm-driven vegetation floating around that you can ride to a new, you know, that's pretty unlikely. We know that it's happened. It's been observed happening with green iguanas in the Caribbean, rafting to an island they worked previously on. We, so we know this sure. happens. Hmm. That's probably extraordinarily rare. What is probably a lot more common is if you're, you know, a boreal snake living in a mangrove tree right near the ocean and that storm comes, you don't need an entire raft of vegetation. You just need the one stick you were already hanging on to. That stick is your raft. And you've got a perfect grappling hook of a tail to hold on. You know who doesn't need to drink water for days or even weeks at a time? Snakes. Like, they're very well suited to... If you look at distribution of, like, cat-eyed snakes, like Boiga, 
they're literally everywhere. Why? Because they're probably dispersed really well over water for that same reason. Why are mm. there, you know, why are there, uh, you know, you've got lots of insular populations of corallus, same thing. Uh, you've got lots of insular populations of a lot of arboreal snakes get dispersed farther and wider than you, but than terrestrial things. That's why look at the distribution of short tailed pythons. Pretty limited, isn't it? Because they're, <laughs> they're not very seaworthy. Yeah. But, you know, but a, an arboreal python, look at retics and scrub pythons. There are scrub pythons in places that would blow people's minds if they do like some of the where these things have been found and just have like hundreds of miles out into the ocean on tiny islands in the middle of nowhere. It's like, but they're there because they disperse well. So they're, sure. they're kind of built for that. Carbon that makes a lot of sense. Not makes as much. a lot of sense. What? It makes a lot of sense. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. We were able to get a couple pictures of Torres Strait Island carpet pythons. That was a thrill. Like, they, wow. they're, really? they're on a couple of these islands and got pictures. <laughs> no shit. Like, okay. Torres Strait Island carpet pythons. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a coup. There's a bunch of yeah, really, there's a bunch of awesome pictures I can't wait for people to see. I don't know. I probably shouldn't spoil it all or anything, but there's a few. <laughs> like, in somewhere in the world going, ah! You spend years begging for pictures of this, that, and the other thing. And everyone, and mostly it's just disappointing pictures. You get nothing or it's a disappointment, but every once in a while you just get like a, holy crap, I can't believe we got that. Like, yeah. Um, the hardest thing to get are predation events where someone literally finds a wild carpet python eating some other wild animal and they just happen upon that and get you a good image of it. It's like that's there's a few of those in there, and I'm like one in particular of an imbricata that there's a few images in this series, and it's like it's awesome. You picked the absolute best looking carpet python in the world to be on the cover. Some of your picture is just that's like, one of those weird things hell. we were just talking about. That's one of those like it's a Flinders Ranges carpet. That's like, what the heck is this? Oh, I my think gosh. One thing I want people, Justin and I, to, uh, I think we want people to understand and to get a sense for it is that there are still things that are not known. Not There is still a sense of mystery. There is still the unknown. There are still things yet to be discovered and interpreted out there, even in you know developed nations like Australia. We don't we haven't found everything. Yeah. We haven't we don't understand everything. There's still some mystery out there. Uh, even today, and that's yeah. oh, falls into that sort of. It's, uh, it's endless. You learn one thing, you you get four more questions, right? And it's just that's that's the beauty of it all. This is yeah. why I need to get back there. Damn it! <laughs> Damn you! Spent this time getting pictures of island forms of carpet python. So we did. We have a lot of different weird island, you know, cool. forms of this, that, and the other. Uh, so I was pretty happy about that. Got a couple really good shots of Isle of St. Francis carpets in the wild. Kind of in oh, situ. Nice. Yeah, and I was like thrilled. And they're high quality images and that kind of. I'm a nerd. That kind of stuff. That's what floats my boat, seeing that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got a question, Nick. Did Gary still do the, is the diamond section of keeping still from Gary getting put in there? And yeah. Ben's uh, section is still in there? Or is that... I don't think it changed much. It, it moved in that now it's. Okay. Instead of a subset of the diamond python chapter for continuity, it's a subset of the reproduction chapter. So its location got gotcha. moved, but there's not. I don't. I can't recall if we changed anything of any consequence. Uh, sometimes okay. you need to alter the language at the beginning and the end to kind of fit it to the where you're inserting this section yeah. in some other stuff. You got to to transition. So 
but I don't think we change it appreciably. It's perfectly valid information. It's not likely to ever change. And, you know, until I have so much experience breeding diamond pythons that I can bring something new to the table and know something Gary didn't, I'm going to defer to the guy that, you know, that does, knows, yeah. the bat, knows the most. Yeah, 100%. So, that's, yeah, that's okay. still there. Uh, and that's important information for people to understand that, like, because this problem of people still screwing their diamond pythons up by treating them like everything else and stuff is still. I guess you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. I can put the information out there, and I can't make people read it or do anything with it. But yeah. I do feel right. it's incumbent upon us to do our best to impress upon people these sorts of things. I mean, the last book was pro- is my favorite book of all time. So I imagine this next book is just going to be. It is a lot more. Like it's a lot more. Wow. Every. Yeah, it's a lot more. Like, everything is way longer. Like, okay, the morph chapter in the first, I actually, because I have all the original files, The just the, it's mostly just a gallery of images of, look at this cool thing. If you looked at right. all the text and you stuck all the text together, it's about four pages of text. That's all of the text in the morph section. The new one is 20 pages of text. There are sections about, like, how morphs actually work. There's a glossary of genetics terms. So you understand how all that works. There's like a section on like how you actually prove out a new putative mutation. How do you, what do you do? Do you think you got something? How do you prove it out? How do you go through that process and prove that out? And in the galleries at the end, there's three galleries. The last one is a gallery of unproven new mutations that may or may not, or it's not, it's too early to know they're in the middle of that process that we talked about of figuring it out. And so it's kind of your poison ivory has a couple pictures in there. <laughs> Bunch of melanistic yeah. stuff. But there are a few others like, you know, I don't know. Are they genetic? What is it? It's too early to tell. But it's interesting, I think, to see that there are always it's, things it's, in development. It's crazy to think, you know, uh, 10 years ago, there was, you know, a handful of morphs. And now... <laughs> It's just a huge section in the book because of all the different combinations and stuff is is pretty cool. Uh, uh, yeah, there's 129 combos. <laughs> yeah, just combos. Yeah, it's actually 130 <laughs> because number 130 just hatched like four days ago. And yeah, I contacted me. He's like, "Can I get, get?" It's like I need it to shed. It's still wet, basically. It would just come out of the egg, and it's what it is, and it's pretty cool. I go if you can get a. The second it sheds, give me a good quality picture and I'll try, but I can't at this point when Russ gets to whatever chapter, it's too late. Like at that point, that's the end. Uh, at the rate he's going through the species chapters first, I suspect that I'll be able to get this picture of this. Uh, it's a snow silver pepper, which is kind of a, mm. a triple, which yeah. I believe is the world's first triple recessive. Very cool. So it's, it's cool, but it's, you know, I got it's got to at least have shed, uh, so I'm trying to squeeze that in. Uh, I mean, I do get like as soon as I said it's basically I'm done, then I get all these people asking me to like, oh, can I get this in there? So, <laughs> yeah, I think Darren yeah. was just talking about that on the uh, Aussie podcast the other day. Like, um, it's yeah, I got my who is Darren. Darren was mentioning, I, I think at that point when he recorded it, must have not been hatched out, but he was talking about that he hoped that he hit it. So. Darren's got a number of like pictures like uh, he was pretty good about like getting me pictures of stuff he has a bunch of a bunch of stuff in there you've got a bunch of stuff in there actually 
Nice. Oh, so that blows like, my mind. That seven? blows my mind. That, that seven or eight. Carpet Python book. Um, yeah, you're like, yeah. like top five, I think. There's a lot of people with one picture, two pictures at most, and there's, you know, and then there's Paul. Up, oh, of course, Paul has, I think, 47 or something ridiculous. It's you almost the school rat. of jamming with Eddie Van Halen. Almost. Yeah, you know, right? <laughs> almost. <laughs> well, Lucas? I said, you end up using my rat? I think I did. Yeah. <laughs> I think I did. I, Actually, I, I, haven't, I haven't laid that section out yet. It's in the folder to use it. There we go. I, I've been I, waiting on a couple of pictures, like trying to get pictures of a couple things, but some things are inherently difficult to get pictures of. Like I'd love to get a picture of a snake with a bad respiratory infection, but no one wants to give you that picture because they got I, it. They I don't want that, that photo. Picture. No one wants that photo credit. I worked on a major. <laughs> There's not a bunch of them around. It's just no one wants to give me the picture. So I, I yeah. probably not. I got an awesome snake mite picture though from a friend. It's like I, a, I, I got you on the RI. Like, I, I can do that for you. What? <laughs> I said I got you on the RI. I can do that for you. I work at the Vivarium. Is it a carpet python? <laughs> Uh, blood python will that work? There's a blood, carpet, no, it's got to be like a ah, damn it. Like All right, well, I'll keep my eye out again. If you have the uh, yeah. yeah, you know, these sorts of like you know, I've got pictures of like malignant intestinal tumors surgically removed and stuff. And oh, well, I had a snake that got the the dreaded uh intestinal tumor that carpet pythons are you know really adept at growing. Uh, and uh, I, it was still alive, but I gave it a friend who's a vet tech and works at a vet's office. And I said, look, it's nice. not going to make it, but it's alive for convenience, but euthanize it and give me pictures of what this is and pathology. So I have pictures of the pretty low, they're pretty small images, but pictures of this, like of, of this tumor and the official diagnosis of all that. Cause I think it's, you know, people need to know that yeah. a lot of people in the hobby would be quite surprised to find out that snakes get all the same problems we get. Mm. They have kidney failure, liver failure, pneumonia, cancer, all the same stuff, you know, yeah. that we get, they can get it's, and you don't, you know, it's important to know that with things like tumors, you're really not likely to be able to do much about it, but at least if you know, you know, uh, you, right. know, you can act accordingly. Um, but yeah. So, some of so Alex has a question. He says, when can we buy the new book? Oh, hell, I don't know. <laughs> like, okay. I don't want. I will not be pigeonholed into a date specific. It's not. Yeah. I intend. I'm sure between Soon. Justin and I that within the next ten days the writing will be 100% complete. The photo layout for because you. How we do this is you, you write a bunch of word documents for each chapter. You write all the text and then it goes back and forth between Justin and I about a dozen times adding to it, changing it, crossing the other guy's stuff out, rewriting it. And it goes back and forth and you, and you argue, we already argue, but I mean, you just, and I don't argue, but we like, we, we debate and go back and forth until everybody's happy or nobody's happy or whatever until it, you can go no further. And then the next step is you go through and you select the images that you are going to use. And we put embed in the text, like little color coded, like code numbers for where to put images. So when we give that to Russ who does all the layout He's got the text, and it's like in, in brackets, it'll be like 6A-17. And then he goes through a cheat sheet that has like what the caption is, what the photo credit is, and then there's another file that has the actual images whose reference, whose file names are that code. And so it just is a roadmap for here's the caption, here's the picture, and here's where you put it. Nice. And he assembles it all. Nice, nice, so nice. that process, you know, I can't control how fast that happens. Uh, Russ is pretty 
pretty experienced at doing this. Uh, so a couple of the chapters are already back. We already have a couple of them already back in their PDF sort of form. Uh, they're not done in the sense that we have to go over it about 10,000 times to proofread it and make sure <laughs> everything's approved kind of artistically how it looks and, you know, make sure everything's spelled right. It's amazing. You can go over it 10 times and you'll keep finding tiny little grammatical errors and stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Something like, that I, size? Hell yeah, man. <laughs> I noticed in the, in the uh, I don't want to say Jungle Carpet chapter, but the chapter formerly known as the Jungle Carpet chapter, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's now more than just that. There's like a photo credit that there's like an extra E on the end of the person's name that shouldn't be there. It's stuff like that you're trying to go over it a million times. Right. So those are in there, revised the, the final touches, and I expect, you know, there'll be more added very soon. Uh, he or we've already given him eighty percent of the book. The only chapters oh. he does not have are uh, the husbandry chapter, evolutionary history, and the intro chapter, which is fairly short. Um, right. So of a five hundred and fifty page book, he's probably got four hundred and seventy five pages of it. Uh, ultimately to so plenty to get through the evolutionary history chapter was always going to be the last one because it's by far the hardest it's the most it is like i'm gonna have to work on that tomorrow and sunday and it's gonna take me the first hour of writing on that chapter is me just like opening up all these papers and kind of rereading a million things and kind of getting my head getting all that data in my brain at one time so they can construct a coherent narrative because it's just mm -hmm. it's it's difficult stuff. So it was always going to be the last thing. Um, so finishing the last little bit of that, but it's almost there. I expect I'll, I'll finish my last major contribution. I've got Justin's last major contribution. I'll send him, I'll go through what he wrote. I'll add what I'm going to add. I'll send it back to him. So he kind of signs off on what I added and he'll make a few little tiny changes. And by the last time it gets back to me, we're pretty much there. I would suspect at this moment, but it's literally like the 13th iteration of the chapter over a couple of year period. But, I know when it comes out, I'm going to have to make sure I buy three copies of it because when it goes out I of print yesterday. <laughs> six like, years from now, I'll be able to sell it on Amazon for 700 know. bucks. You know, I don't know how many copies he's, you know, historically like uh, Bob would print up about 5,000 copies of each book. Right. And that's you know, supposed to last you a period of years. Uh, right. This book is going to be bigger. It'll be, it will Regardless of what the page count turns out, it's going to be far and away the biggest book in that series of all time. Uh, I can't fathom that it's less than 500 pages. So it's, it's going to be noticeably larger than even Vin's second edition, which is about 450. It's going to be probably at least 100 pages longer than that. And the print costs have probably gone up. The number of books in a you ship a case of books, it's the same size box and you're shipping it by weight, but you're going to get less books because it's so big. Right. So I don't know how that's going to affect uh, costs. And, you know, so I don't know what a price point is, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that's not up to me anyway. That's Bob's area of expertise. He's got a lot of experience. He knows what he's doing. So I leave those things to him. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, they've been pretty good to write that's books awesome. for, I can say like, it doesn't like, they don't micromanage anything. They just let us do our thing. And they don't, <laughs> it's kind of, it's, if that's awesome. complete uh, autonomy. It's like, really don't, uh, been almost no disputes of anything really pretty agreeable uh, right so and you know that's cool I don't know. hopefully we've done a good job that'll be up to other people to decide <laughs> so, so so you're i mean you're the carpet python guy right i mean 
you're writing a book about it. You wrote one 10 years ago. As soon as you stopped writing that book, you probably thought, oh, I should have put this in there. I learned this, da, 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 da. And now here you are 10 years later. How do you stay so enthusiastic through that process? I mean, I guess it's the same for NPR, but you're going so deep diving into a topic like... Yeah, this is. Is there is there any points where you're like, I need a break from carbon pythons? Yeah, are you ever oh, just yeah, banging like, your head against? Yeah. <laughs> that sort of herpetological burnout. That's real. We all go through those periods. Like if if you've paid attention to my social media presence the last few months, I've hardly been around. Mm-hmm. Like I have right. like, and that's not being around and not answering silly questions. And it's like it's kind of like I, you kind of need a break sometimes. Like you. Burnout yeah. is a real thing, and it, it happens. It's happened to all of us. I'm quite confident. I know it's 100%. happened to me. It comes and it goes, and you get back on the horse. But it, it's with the carpets. I don't know. That was the first thing I fell in love with in the hobby. And fortunately yeah. for me, it's such a, a large, dynamic, uh, variable group that there's a lot there. You know, if I, I can't imagine like I was just like if it was African rock pythons, and I, like it's like well you you dig up everything there is to know within a few years. I mean, there's not as much to, to go on carpets. There's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. A lot of rabbit holes to go down. And I think we've gone down all of them. Like I don't, I can see someone reading this book and having criticisms of it, but they can't, the criticism will never be that they weren't thorough. (laughs) They will not say that they might disagree with everything. They might, you know, think I'm a jackass. That's, popular opinion too i mean that's probably has some merit but i mean they're you're not going to look at this book and say well they didn't do their homework or they didn't you know it's like it's like you might argue we did too much homework it's like it's too it is but i think you know realistically almost no one is going to get this book and read it from page one and end on page 570 they're not going to do that they skim through it they go to the sections that are important to them at a particular time and read that or not read that it's like there are probably three thousand people that have the first edition of that book that never read any of the evolutionary history chapter at all because it's nerdy dry stuff but you know it's there's probably those people out there and this will be no different it's like it's there if you want to read that you don't have to um yeah you know yeah i'm sure there's certain there's certain people in the hobby that would be wouldn't be drawn to that initially, right? But I think I think what I've experienced, and I'm I don't know, maybe you tell me if I'm wrong, that for the most part, carpet python people, Moralia people, they seem to dive more into that nerdy stuff. And and Nick, you made a prediction back in 2011 that at one point I would be like, who cares about morphs and all this stuff? And I was like, never. And now here I am. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yep. pure localities of stuff, and you know, um, but and I think the ability I think what you anyway, that's uh, yeah. If I had to choose between morphs and like pure locality forms, then and I could only work with one, it would not take me. It would just be a millisecond to make that decision. I don't July. have to choose that. I can keep all this stuff because it's my job. So I kind of have to at this point, really. But um, you know. I, I will say that, like, well, I, you know, I, I hatched out like super hypo tiger coastals. That's pretty cool. That's some pretty oh, yeah. snakes. Like, they're, they're, every time I got to go in there and feed them or clean them, like, wow, that is really awesome. And then I was kind of stoked 100%. about that. But I'm more stoked about the, the other stuff I think is more important to me in the grand scheme yeah. of things. Um, 
Well, and I, I feel like too, I mean, at least for me personally, and I know Eric, we relate on this. Um, like the first book, when I got that as kind of all this stuff was new to me, I probably flipped to the morph chapter first and maybe was the guy that skipped the evolutionary history chapter. <laughs> Come around. Right. You're that guy. You're that guy. I might have been that guy at first, <laughs> but this time I'm going straight to evolutionary history. I'm going straight to Owen Valley. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to look at the morphs. I, I don't care. But <laughs> it's like, yeah. I managed to dig up a few like i just think the art aspect of it is cool so i'm putting them in there in the evolutionary history chapter because some of these things were described before photography was even a thing so you get like <laughs> these crazy like lithographs of you know artistic paint drawings and lithographs of these animals and stuff that are always anatomically kind of questionable they're not really i think that's awesome they're always in weird positions and <laughs> i've got uh you know some 170 year old like lithographs of like well one of them's python peroni which is it would have been a fun yeah, job so, back in the day the a, guy that got to decide what species look there like are a handful of the these world. well the problem in like when you get back to the early 19th century in the mid 19th century is the speed of communication was really slow so you had a and it was kind of a fashionable thing to be a naturalist yeah you know <laughs> See, so a lot of these mostly well-to-do British guys travel around to remote parts of the world, grabbing wild animals and pickling them and sending them back to museums in Britain to be classified. The problem was that there's a bunch of those guys, and none of them knew that the other guys were there also. So you have multiple people describing the same thing differently because they had <laughs> no idea that they were operating around the same period of time. They didn't know. I mean, it takes a while. There's not, there's not cell phones. Nobody's, you know, these guys didn't know there's other people in the area doing these same things. So later people, academics, museum people and whatnot, uh, synonymized a lot of things. So there is a lot of, if you're going to dink around with taxonomy, uh, one of the core principles of that is the rule of priority, which basically just states that if something is a biologically significant thing, i.e. it is a species, uh, you have to use the oldest name that's on the legitimate, honest name that's on the books. Uh, that has priority over anything subsequently. So anybody that describes something that's later figured out to be the same thing, the older name is the one that you're stuck with. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the older name is terrible. <laughs> um, but this happens all the time. And people a lot of times have short-term memories or they conveniently forget about old names because they want to make a new name, uh, you know, as is what's happened with the Owen Pelly Python, getting their own genes. Yeah, it's not, it's not valid, though. <laughs> uh, it's, you can't just do that. That paper names Nawarin. Great. I think that's an awesome sounding genus name. I love it. Except for there was already a monophyletic or monotypic genus erected in 1985 for Owen Palenzis called Nyctophilopython, which is a dreadful name. <laughs> yeah. It's dreadful. <laughs> True story. It's in Wells and Wellington, 1985. And the paper that Nawarin is named in, they knew that was in there. They just conveniently forgot that because they thought no one would care. Um, mm -hmm. They literally cite Wells and Wellington 1985 in a paper for another reason and then conveniently forget that that same paper erects a genus for own belly pylon because they wanted to make their own name. Yeah. There's actually a whole paper, another group of academics basically calling bullshit on that. So you can't do that. This is this has priority. Literally, there's a paper rebutting that. So, and it's, oh, it's, cut, it's, that one's really cut and dry. Uh oh, so, science drama. <laughs> as much as I want to use Noirin because it's a way better name, uh, it's, yeah. you got to go by, you got to play by the rules. Like, I'm not going to. Nyctophilopython. Nyctophilopython. Yeah, it's terrible. 
Nick Nickto. Nickto. Yes. Nickto Filo. Filo like Filo Doe. There are oh wait till you get low to some of the scrub python ones. It's just ridiculous. Some of the the old scrub python names that people like named and they all got synonymized and the but every time we get Scott on here, he keeps saying King Horny. And I can't (laughs) stop laughing because I'm a child. (laughs) (laughs) It is funny. It's a the uh yeah some of the scrub python names from the past are just <laughs> awful dusa borensis uh is one uh there's just a bunch of bad wow. ones there's not as many old carpet python names on the books there are four or five and we list there's a taxonomic history section in the evolutionary history chapter that kind of goes through some of these other uh things like uh you know the python coroni cool. which is a diamond python you look at the monograph from the original work and there's a painting of it and it's obviously a diamond python um, and was you know properly synonymized as being a diamond python. So uh, there, there are a few other ones in there. Uh, <laughs> not, not a ton, right? Yeah. Do you do you see yourself? I know I'm, I'm not. I don't know if you have an answer to this or not. But do you see yourself revising the complete children's Python book? Uh, I don't know. I mean it. You know, if it if it sells all the copies and Bob wants to give it another go, then I'm sure we would. Okay. Uh, there would be there would be additional data that could be added to that. Right. That book was a little shorter than it would have otherwise been. Originally, that book was supposed to be like a uh, like a thirty dollar paperback only, like hundred eighty page book, a small book at a lower price point. And then, so we started writing it with that in mind. So the evolutionary history chapter of that book is, it's a lot more condensed because we're trying to make it a smaller book that fit into a certain you know, page number of pages and whatnot. And, uh, right. We're sending this up to Bob. He says, you know, I, he, Bob decided he wanted to put it in the complete series. So that was like, well, now we gotta like make it longer. So some of it's probably would have been 20 or 30 pages longer if we just started out with that in mind. Gotcha. And there is, you know, a few more, there's a bit more molecular evidence with anteresia. There are some questions that could be answered now there's questions we could answer now, but, you know, so there would be, there would be things you could expand uh, for right. sure. Okay. Uh, so maybe I don't never say never. Uh, right. That's I've got cool. a lot of other writing projects, frankly, like on the table without going into any excruciating detail. Look at Lucas nodding his head. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, uh, I said nothing. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I That's think cool. Justin and, I, Justin and I have become the old guys who write books. I think uh, <laughs> uh, we have You're like a, the two Muppets are, to be, man. The two old Muppets like that are up literally in the got, or whatever. <laughs> literally got three more book projects. I'm going to start all of them after this carpet book is done. But they're all different subjects, and they are all with different groups of other co-authors. So my own, what I need to write as you know as nick is not i need to write half a book i gotta write a third or a quarter of a book in this kind of thing um so and they'll be at various stages but so literally it'd be no rest at all as soon as this is after about seven to ten days from now i will no longer need to generate an original thought about carpet pythons i'll be done thinking knowing you though you will be no no the text is done i will no longer i won't have to read any more papers i won't have to do anything hard i won't make my brain won't be sweaty <laughs> I'll just be like putting pictures, picking pictures and making sure stuff's spelled right. And it becomes, that stuff is pretty easy to do. I can do that with music playing like in the background. I don't have to focus. 
quite so intently. Once it's to the point where I don't need to use my actual brain, other than to find spelling errors, I can do other things. Uh, and that's what I'm going to dive into. I have a, a meeting on the, Justin and I have a meeting on the 29th, the team meeting about the uh, the very next thing on the 29th. Uh, so we will be well wait. into writing another book before this book even see, anybody sees it. You get four days for Christmas and then it's back to work, damn it. <laughs> yes. It's actually better that way. It was, we did the Antaresia book. We never stopped. We were, Justin and I were in a real good rhythm. We got our, our dynamic back and forth between he and I, and it was flowing really well. And what we noticed was when all the these Aussies were sending us pictures of wild carpet pythons, they'd oftentimes throw in, oh, here's this cool stimmy I found too, just as for your own interest. <laughs> and like, so we had amassed like a fair amount of like cool Antaresia pictures accidentally. Uh, and right. I asked those people at the time, hey, if we ever do an ant book, you know, would, would we use these? So we just basically never stopped. Like we literally just kept going the whole time. And when you're already in that rhythm, it, it just went a lot. So the ant book was way faster because we didn't have to get our groove back. Mm-hmm. I will right. say that this time we had to get our groove back, especially me. Like, boy, it'd been a minute, you know. Uh, it took a minute to get get back into that sort of mindset and doing that. But I don't want to. So the plan is to just plow through and not actually uh, ever stop. For the next several years. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it's, it's How will I ever good. have you on podcast? I think that say I have the luxury of knowing what these three books are covering, and I think you guys you'll be pretty you'll be pretty stoked, Eric. I think you'll be I think I think you'll be, uh, yeah. I think you'll be pleased uh, with what we're what all we're doing. But uh, I don't know when the time to start talking about that stuff is. Sometimes there are reasons to not talk about things. Um, yeah, you know, I get sometimes. it. <laughs> well, when you're writing a book about whatever a species group or whatever, or a species, there's always like there's always a couple other guys that think they should be the one writing that book, or have been threatening to write said book for years and never did anything. And that's like I don't really want to light a fire under anybody else's ass to <laughs> do a thing what I'm doing. So it's sometimes better to like you know not talk about such things until you're pretty far down the track, <laughs> but, but suffice to say, uh, right. there will be three other books that will see the light of day and they'll probably be Excellent. similarly over the top, I guess, in terms of like content wise. But once you go this far, I don't think you can ever like retreat from that and make a simpler thing. It would just right. seem like a letdown. So you're like, whatever the bar is set, like the highest the bar ever was, that's where you got to be or beyond it. You can't go. I couldn't make a second Carpet Python book that was on par with the first. It has to be better than the first. You have to, it's got to exceed that. See, Nick, opinion. I took your idea for, you took it to books. I took it to podcasts. You, you, <laughs> I took you your same ideas yeah. and took it to podcasts. It's like you uh, gotta be is this bigger. Because I'm looking at a camera, so is that a podcast? <laughs> or? It's a it's a simulcast. Yeah, it will be uh, a podcast. Yeah, I didn't know it was gonna it's, be video, and I'm like, I didn't know that when I signed up. Like, I don't want to be on camera. I'm like, why? I gotta you gotta like face for the movies, Nick Mutton. It's weird sitting here looking at my own self on my monitor while I'm talking in real time. Hmm. See, I just look at Riley's beard the whole time. It's a cheat code. I know, right? He was stroking it a minute ago, doing one of these, like some sort of a super villain. <laughs> He's been awfully said, quiet lately. I think he is a super villain. <laughs> somebody know, said right? he was um, 
Somebody said he was pretty in the chat, and I said, <laughs> no, he's not pretty. He's a sophisticated metal Viking. That's what he is. <laughs> right. That's right. He's like, I will get you. Uh, yes. Yes. I just sit in plot destruction all day. <laughs> Somebody's uh, gonna... Excellent. Well, we are almost at the end uh, of the two hours. I don't know, uh, Nick. Um, you know, I, I assume that this will be on your web. I mean, it's going to be blasted all over the place. And I'm sure that, you know, you'll be on NPR and every other podcast there is talking about it. But, um, you know, I guess just stay tuned for details. Watch your website. Go buy some carpets while you're over there or. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. My website okay. was having some problems and I've got it back up and running, but I've got a few kinks to smooth out still as of today. But, uh, oh. I'm not very tech savvy, as we've already established. So <laughs> it is a it is a slog and a strain for me to, you know, be involved with any aspect of that sort of stuff. So but uh, yeah. Yeah, Very that's cool. the problem. See, everybody can see what I look like, and I'm just looking at myself on the screen, thinking, like, would you buy a used snake from that guy? <laughs> a used snake. <laughs> a used snake. A gently used snake from this guy. Oh man. Well, if anybody will buy a snake from Owen, I think you're in good shape. Yeah, you're 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 all right. <laughs> oh, oh man. Squ- Squatch and tire. Yes. <laughs> there it is. There he is. Yo, Nick, Lucas, you, you don't know how me. much you blew his brain last night when that popped up. He's like, we're having this conversation, and he's like, wait a minute, what is that above me? <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to pee. It was so good. He he's he he's never proceed. seen that. Oh, he could not great. proceed. Yeah. yeah, he's like, stop the press. Well, yeah, I watched the rest of the show today from the point that I had to bow out, and he kind of his brain got broke a few times, especially when his fiance came in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was good. Yeah. It was I really think she good. wanted to say more, but he was. I don't know if he was, was like, like pushing her away or what, what he was doing. You know, so good. Uh, Nick, I, I did see in the chat, and I want to. I do want to ask you too. What's the lizard behind your left shoulder in the in the bigger? Uh, tank there oh it's a spiny tailed iguana spiny tailed iguana it's like my first cool reptile from a million years ago and i was like <laughs> i mean i'm like a million year old like octogenarian now but like there was a point where i was in the early 90s i was like a you know total <laughs> random dipshit hobbyist didn't know anything and the coolest lizard in the world i got like a i got my hands on a spiny tailed iguana just a tenosaurus similis you know the common spiny tail and it was like the coolest lizard ever. Nice. It was like a female. I would let it out. It would wander around on its own out of its cage. It would let itself back into the cage when it wanted to warm up. It was awesome. I love that thing. That's and then rad. you go, you get older, your tastes change. You have a million other reptiles and a million other things. And I just like wanted to have a spine-tailed iguana again because that was such a cool introduction to the hobby for me so long ago. Nice. I was like 20 years old or whatever. And then I get this one. It's a complete fucking lunatic. <laughs> it's like the opposite of what I had. Well, like, yeah. A little while ago, it was up at the front. Actually, like, actually, U.S. captured bred and born is not even an imported one. I got it when it was a tiny hatching. It was still green. And it's an absolute <laughs> lunatic. It's going crazy. Like it's jumping out of the cage. Like it's like, calm down, man. But I got to get you some Kimberly Rocks there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right there. yeah I have three of them. Yeah. Yeah, three. Yeah. 
I keep threatening to get that kind of stuff. I've got a few friends that breed a lot of that kind of stuff. Awesome. So I've got like some enablers. Yeah. Uh, you do it. Yeah. They're insane. Awesome. You should do it. Yeah. You should do it. Greatest move I ever made, Nick. And then oh you my God, they're so cool. That because there needs to be a lot of work, though. No, they're not. No. No. Really? What do you? No. What do you do? <laughs> they're not feeding bugs. Oh man. Yeah, like two, Listen. three days a week. You keep shit on timers. You're good to go. Change the water here and there. Done. That's it. <laughs> yep. That's it. Nick, oh, it's so cool. Water. <laughs> no, Nick, when you're sitting there at your desk, you can have this little piece of Australia right beside you, like I do. Mine's are right over here. You just look over; they're all running around like uh, you're in the, uh, you know, the Northern Territory. Ah, oh, it's, it's. I gotta great. figure out what to do with all the stuff that's behind me because I now have like, you know, growing pains. I need to convert my office into another baby room. <laughs> so. Jesus. Behind me will be a wall of like 250 iris shoe boxes. Excellent. So I have a baby room that's out, not part of my house. And so I will have three rooms. So the plan is to have like babies that that year's babies, because my incubator is just down the hall. There's a, I have an incubator room. So, you know, first, you know, babies through their first year in here. Then after yearlings move them out to the other baby room. So for yearlings and grow outs and stuff, it's getting a little bigger. And then I've got an adult room. So it'll just be staggered. Because uh, it's like I, wow. there's too many snakes out in my baby room now, and there always has been. It's just too many. It's like it's you know you get too many snakes, you start running into air quality issues and stuff. So I think to depopulate a little bit and split that same amount of snakes up into two rooms, I think it'd be a little easier. Right. Plus, I'm right. downstairs, so it's being basically partly underground, you end up with a super thermostable environment for babies. So right. that's the plan. So I got to build it. Just a ton. I have the tubs. I ordered them. They're like, I have this wall of tubs. It's like this massive you know, 300 and something. I ordered like 320 of them or something. So I have a few extras but, to do it. But, oh my God. So I got to figure out what God. to do with these guys. You need a CNC machine. <laughs> yeah, really. Just That's just a rogues gallery. There's a spiny tail iguana. There's two crested female crested geckos. They don't even have a male. There's an undetermined number of morning geckos in another one. <laughs> there's a a reduced pattern diamond python, and there that's breedable uh, practically. And then I've got a, a rough scale python that I has an interesting life history that I can't sell, so he's just a pet. But oh, that one, nice. Yeah, I'll tell you about that. I, I told you tell about, about that. that. that <laughs> yeah, organs yeah. on the outside of his body when it hatched, and it was like a and all is good, all is well. <laughs> yeah, you never. I, get, I would have given it like less than one percent chance. It's fine. It's like <laughs> he's rat fuzzy now. He's <laughs> doing great. Yeah. I could never sell it, but it's like I guess he's gonna live a pampered life in a planted vivarium. But I'm sure. Uh, yeah, there you go. Cool. Excellent. Now, All right. Well, uh, thanks, Nick. Uh, yeah. What a way to close out uh, 2021. Appreciate you uh, coming on. And 100. Uh, percent and Always I guess uh, we will be waiting at the edge of our seats for this new book to. Uh, so I'll sit too far at the edge of your seat. You might be there a minute. Like, well, <laughs> well, there's some intangibles and some 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 things we can't really control. Like we get the book done, and at right. that point, you're just at the mercy of the printer. Like you're sure. waiting in line because there are other people in front of you they need to print. So I don't know how long that line is, the queue is to get printed. And since they're printed overseas, they have to get shipped 
to the U.S. Oh lord, shipping is like problematic these days and stuff. So there's yes. a lot of delays in shipping, and that I don't know if that will be sorted out completely by that time. But it's kind of hard to predict. So there could be. That's why I keep telling people I'm not can't take a pre-order on something. I don't know how much copies are going to cost. I don't have like a really reasonable estimate as to when it'll be out. I can say that I will be done putting actual real thoughts into it in a few days. After that, it becomes just busy work and you're, you know, clean up and fine tuning of things. But, um, yeah, and then it's, it's largely out of our hands. Sometime but, in 2022? Oh, 100% in 2022. Okay, was, there we go. All right. Secretly, I've been kind of, don't, don't quote me on this, but I'm kind of hoping for late spring. Uh, okay. you know, what? Takes, you said it? No, I'm just kidding. It takes a period of time for them to print them and then ship them and then distribute them. It's like it's, it's a, you know. The yeah, it's a process. That we have very little control of, and there's a lot of you know, issues with that of late. So, yeah, for sure. All right, so, can I can I do one? <coughs> what? One more question, Eric. Go for it. Yeah. All right, Nick. I can't have you and Eric in one virtual room without a Star Wars question. So, oh, are we more excited about the Kenobi show or the Boba Fett spinoff show? I'll let Nick go first. Riley, I love you too, but you can just hang out. <laughs> I am most excited about the Cassian Andor show. Okay. Okay. Because that will likely be a darker, grittier, more hardcore story. No, oh, I hope so. They hired Tony Gilroy, who directed and reshot the last third, the Battle of Scarif and Rogue One, and made it like hey. super duper hardcore. He's brutal as hell. That guy's the showrunner and wrote and produces that series, uh, and it's. I mean, it's it's so dark that Rogue One started out with a murder. Like, it literally started out where your hero <laughs> literally kills his own guy because to shut him up. Like, yeah, like, that's what I, I, I'm expecting that show to be hardcore and more like adult oriented and war oriented. So that's yeah. actually the one I most. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah, good answer. How about you, Eric? I think I would agree. I, okay. I think I I, I would agree yeah. with that one. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I wasn't thinking about it, but I'm with you guys. I think Rogue- I that. Kenobi and then Boba's last. Sorry, Boba. Rogue One was the best Star Wars movie, in my opinion, because when I was a kid in like 1979 or whatever it was when I went and saw that, you know, uh, yeah, right. Really? <laughs> 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 um, it was like it, 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 like you saw the other part of the story, I guess. It gave you like the, the prequel history of it. And it, I don't know. It was just, yeah. it was, it was the best. I feel like it was the the best balance of of originality and you know intent, but also like a little just enough fan service for everyone to feel satisfied. Right. I thought Rogue One is that is my all time favorite Star Wars movie, even more than Empire. Agreed. Agree. Fight me. It's money. It must be our generation, Nick. What? It must be our generation. I agree. It's like like a movie for grownups. It's hardcore. It's brutal. Like they. I mean, it's. It shows that, like, because you watch the other Star Wars movies and you almost get the impression that you can have a galaxy-wide war where nobody dies. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, with no stakes, really. It's like, there's like this is like, whoa, there's, apparently it ain't easy stealing Death Star plans. That costs a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes the original Star Wars from 1977 well, better because it, like, like, shows you, it makes the stakes higher because yes. it shows you what came. Yes. There's, like, one line, that. right, in the original. Yeah, line. it's like... 
many rounds of putting these plans. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I love it. So any continuation of those. There's a line where Cassian in Rogue One tells Jin, he says, we've all done terrible things. Right. For the rebellion. I want to see those terrible things. That's what I want yeah. to see. I want to see Good these terrible things. Some morally yeah. gray stuff. Like, that's what I want to see. So right. that's what I'm looking forward to. Hell yeah, man. Good answer. Riley. Come on back. Come on back to us. Strophorus Tina Cotta. Sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing gecko. Amazing gecko. I love it. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I've watched all the Star Wars. I, I grew up with all of it. I also grew up with ADHD, and I cannot, for the life of me, like organize any of those movies in any sort of order. <laughs> Let alone keep the names in track of what happened with what name. Like, you guys don't understand. A name to me is a category. Is the same as the movie actions is a category. Is the same as what fucking happened. So you like you tell me like, oh yeah, this movie. Like yeah, I probably saw it. What happened to it? I don't fucking know. You tell me, and I'll say yeah, I seen it. Which one was it? I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, that one. Like that's where I'm at. I'm like I've seen it. I promise you, but like I can't remember shit. Right. I'm, I'm such a nerd. I read all the books and everything. <laughs> I read every new canon book that comes out. I almost uh, I almost got Nick in trouble once because I I sent him a like a a Star Wars themed like workout cup thing as like a thank you and right. like I guess I didn't make it clear that it was from me and his girlfriend opened it and was like who's sending you gifts? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cause some trouble. <laughs> yeah, that was that was hilarious. <laughs> oh, that's say, great. I say Lucas. I'm like, <laughs> it's like, it's like Lucas from State Farm? What's he wearing? Uh, khakis. <laughs> anyway, very good. Very good. All right. I guess right. we are out. Uh, yeah. Again, thanks, Nick. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, and we'll be back next year. <laughs> yeah. Shoot. Yep. Everybody yeah, have a wonderful, like uh, safe holiday season. And can't wait to bring in the new year with some more carpets and coffee. That's right. Absolutely. All All right, right, guys. Cool. Bye. Bye.